Welcome to the next track. A podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams. And I'm Kirk McElhern. We self-produce the Next Track podcast and want to keep it ad-free, so we rely on contributions from listeners for support. You can help us by making a regular donation via Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash the next track. And thanks. I think we've been here a number of times recently where when we've explained to our listeners that we didn't have any ideas for episodes, so we just came up with something, not really at the last minute, we figured this out a couple days ago, but it's kind of, this is like an episode today that has a theme that doesn't have a theme because we don't really have a lot to say, but we figured that our listeners were probably expecting us to say something about this. This is the part of the show where Kirk apologizes for the show that hasn't happened yet. We suddenly realized uh, the other day that we're not paying much attention to the uh, the Apple Media apps anymore, specifically, you know, the music app, because, I mean, while we use it for streaming and things like that, our, we haven't been paying attention to it, really. We haven't been reporting on it. I mean, I still sell and uh, provide Apple scripts for the music app, and that's going like gangbusters, quite frankly. Surprisingly, actually, I think one of the interesting things that that has happened is that you and I have moved on <laughs> in a way. And yet there are a lot of people, many people, who were told by Steve Jobs and Apple that the way to listen to your music is digitally. You you rip, mix, burn. You, you, you know, you, even if you have CDs, you still use the digital media as like a, I don't know, as, as a go-between for, you know, listening on your computer or listening portably. And yet Kirk and I now, we don't really pay much attention to our music files. We don't manage them as much as we used to. We spend more time with streaming. So I think we a couple of things have happened in the past few days that have caused us to think about, you know, what what is going on with, with files and what is going on with the um, the Apple Media apps? Isn't that where we want to go with this? Yeah. Now, can I have permission to include a screenshot of this Skype conversation of you in the show notes to show that to your right, you have a nice stacked up turntable amplifier CD player. You mentioned a few episodes ago that you got a turntable and you've gone back to not entirely analog, but you've gone back to having the gear. Whereas me, I haven't changed that. I have pretty much settled on my gear. I've got my Sonos amp. I think it's been three years now. I haven't changed my speakers in a while. Every once in a while, I think about those KEF wireless speakers that are relatively small, apparently have really good sound, AirPlay 2. But then I think, what if they don't keep updating the software and I can't use them, right? There's always that worry that if you're dependent on software for something like a speaker that can last, I, I want to say decades. And I'm, I'm going to put a caveat because at one point I gave my son an old pair of Wharfdale speakers I had. And I had had them for at least 15 or 20 years, a very long time. A, a few years later, I bought him a pair of focal chorus speakers that I had a large one. I bought him a small pair as a birthday present. And he said, wow, they sound so much better. And I realized that the Wharfdales had been played so long time that the high end had, had just disappeared. That over time, since they're physical devices, you know, you lose that. But you think of speakers lasting, let's say, at least 10 years before they start being affected by things like that. So the idea of depending on firmware to use speakers it just seems wrong to me. As much as I'd like to get rid of the wires and all that, it's just not right. The, the digital end of it is something that 
a lot of people are trying to avoid. And one of the things that we've noticed and one of the things that made us want to talk about this stuff is that there seems to be a retro movement going on. And it's it started with vinyl and it goes on to CDs and whatever. But now it's getting into the gear. And you saw an article today, and I haven't read the whole thing. I just kind of glanced at it really quickly. But there's an article on What Hi-Fi about the high-end Munich show, which is an annual audio show where they show off new gear. And it's looking like manufacturers are kind of going backwards with their design and their... Well, one of the things I read was the, uh, the, the finish on the speakers will be something that your grandparents will remember. And <laughs> I, I know what they're talking about, that 70s wood finish sort of thing. And apparently that's kind of hip now. Is it hip because it sounds better? Or is it hip just because it looks retro? What's the, what's the deal? It's not just the wood finish. They also point out tube amplifiers, which are selling because of that, the warm tube sound. Yeah, there's another know, thing and, that's, and, yeah, that's coming back. That's the people we've tried, we've tasted the digital and people seem to be thinking, uh, maybe the analog was all right to begin with. Well, don't forget, this is this is high-end hi-fi. This is audiophile stuff. This is expensive. This is not for the general public. This is people who are looking for another dopamine hit when they've gotten yet another new audio device to change their listening setup. So, well, the dopamine drips down. <laughs> I mean, it's uh, at some point or another, and you know, in a year or two, the that's this sort of retro look or. The audiophile style, if you will, mm -hmm. um, will sort of permeate the conventional wisdom after a while. So that, I mean, that's one of the reasons I pay attention to what's going on on high end, because eventually it works its way into the stuff you can buy at Radio Shack. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, those speakers remind me of the first Radio Shack speakers that I had. The, the ones, if you, if you follow the link in the article and look at the speakers in the first image, the ones on the very left looked like those Radio Shack. What was the brand? Were, were they branded as Tandy or did they have a different brand name for the speakers? Realistic. Realistic, yes. Which is a great name, actually, for speakers, Realistic. Yes. Yes. But they have that yeah. awkward, oblong, rectangular mm. look that I have never liked about 70s speakers. Um, yeah. But it's, you know, it's a look. The thing about speakers is there's not much you can do. There's, there's physics involved, right? So they have to be boxes that are sort of rectangular. I know there have been some flat speakers over the years. I don't think they've been extremely popular. You have your round speakers like the HomePod and the Sonos One, and and you get the funny shaped things like the um, what is it Bauer and Wilkins Zeppelin, which is weird yeah. shape. But speakers in general, football. It's not a Zeppelin. It's a football. Exactly. Speakers. It's, in, it's a rugby ball. What is it? What do you? No, mean? no. Rugby balls are are blunter at the ends. Oh, they are. Okay. Yeah, but there's not much you can do about speaker design. You can make them different colors. You can put grills on or not. I mean, I'm looking at my. Kef, I think it's a 350 or whatever. They're really minimalistic, almost like Dieter Rams designed them. They're white. You see the speaker cone, which is gray. You see the black circle around that. And they're very minimal, but you can't, there's not a lot you can do. No, I mean, you can mess with the exterior and you can play around with the fact that there are two speakers in there and do designs based on ovals and circles and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, I mean, it used to be that the the speaker was shape was was based on acoustic properties that had been tested by you know white lab coated audio engineers and at least that was the presumption that i always had it's like well you're building these cabinets because they're supposed to be this size because that's the optimal 
uh, size and dimension for the, getting the sound out, right? I mean, that's what I always thought. Until, unless you had realistic speakers, in which case it was, well, these sort of look like those Japanese speakers. You remember when you used to be able to buy speaker kits and put them together yourself? I never saw the did. the interest in that. I did. I made I made speaker pairs. I did a pretty good job. Really? I think. Well, I had, I had homemade speakers cabinets couple of times. Yeah. In any case, you can't change speakers much. So all you can change is the finish. So the front end, the grill, things like that. Now, now, Kef arguably has some interesting speakers. I'll put a link to the wireless ones that I like in the show notes, as well as the ones that I have, the white ones that I have. They are attractive. And we talked once with Chris Conacher about speaker design and how it's not very innovative. When you get to the high end, they have all sorts of weird shaped things. and But down at the low end, it's a box. But that's not important. What We want to get back to the, the to the apps here, right? We started by talking about the apps. And the fact that how long has it been since the music app came out? It's been a year and a half? We're looking for a date like 2019, 2020. Right. It was 2019, so it was pre-COVID. It was with macOS Catalina, and that's when they split into the four apps. So it hasn't changed in two and a half years. And what I was saying when we were discussing this the other day is I don't see any reason for them to change this app ever again. No, what for? I mean, the digital files aren't changing. They're not going to, there's nothing different about the way you manage files with it. I mean, what are they going to do except add new features that will make it more troublesome? Um, you know, it's just more, di <laughs> well, more difficult for them to maintain. I mean, if they're going to add these silly features, then it's something that they have to be prepared to have tech support and things like that on. And, you know, why bother? We, I, I, like I said earlier, I think we're post-digital, yet there are still people who are in digital. They're still, they still love their files. They still love to, to housekeep them. They still love to listen to them. They still like to make playlists, manage them, you know, all that stuff. Um, and that, that's, it's, that's not nostalgia. That's sort of like, well, I've, I know what I like, and I like what I know, and I'm going to, this is the way I'm going to listen to music. As I said, this is the way Apple raised a, a generation of music listeners to listen to files. Something just crossed my mind. The music app is a bookcase. There's no need to change it because I'm looking at the bookcase behind you. You've had this bookcase as long as I've known you. Why would you ever change it? You, you may move the books around, but the bookcase is there. Right. right. The bookcase is is doing the job that it's supposed to do, and that's hold stuff at various levels and in different places so that I can find it when I want it and I know it's over there. iTunes Music, same thing. It doesn't need new features. It doesn't need to be updated. It's not that it should be frozen in time. I was trying to think Pages or other Mac apps are, you know, they're essentially the same all the time. They may add a new feature here or there, but it's still essentially a word processor or a spreadsheet. And now I, and music is now a music database jukebox program. Okay. Way, same as it ever was, but yeah. just no new features coming. We're not going to see new smart playlists or genius or things like that. We're not going to see innovations like that anymore. I don't think so. But the, the first thing I think of is, is the visual aspect, because remember we had iTunes 10 where you had both the media picker on the left where you choose your media kind, then you had the buttons in the center. It was like you had so many permutations that it was really confusing. And they got rid of that and they went back to what's – it's not that far away from the original iTunes the way it is now. It's just the interface looks different. And there's something to be said for that column on the left side and the, the browsing window and you can have the list and all that. It's just efficient. It's a standard um, UI now. 
Yeah. I mean, he, most look at the the stuff that they look at the podcast app, left column, browser, table on the right. And everything has that. That's what it looks like. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's what it's come down to in general. Right. In, in software design. It's like, well, this is how you want to sort. You want to sort with this on the left, and then you want to get a little more precise on the right. That's how it is. I don't think you can modify that. That's a... That's a convention that is, is is just part of using a computer now. Just like windows and icons and menus. iTunes doesn't yeah. need to be any different. Just like windows and icons and menus. We're so used to them that we can't really change. Right, exactly. It's part of the desktop convention. Yeah, but even what sort of new features would there be for a music app? You know, we talk about... You can add features to an iPhone. You can add new sensors and you can improve the camera and things. But a music app does one thing right i mean obviously you got the library maintenance and for a lot of people that still exists but it, that stuff hasn't changed in a long time interestingly you know my take control of mac os media apps i'll do a quick plug here my ebook that's in it's i don't know how many editions i've done of it since it was originally itunes etc as i go through that book there are sections where i have to make changes every time there's a new major new version but the the last few chapters at the end nothing ever changes the bit about ripping cds none of that is has changed in years in fact i even talked with my editor about taking it out of the book and putting it on the web last time because we figured it makes the book less imposing it's like 30 pages of reference material but he was right to say that people don't want to have to go to the web to find something in the book. It doesn't. We're not printing it, so it doesn't cost us anything. But there are whole sections that never change. There are bits where there's little tweaks about the way playlists work and all that, and they'll probably continue to tweak that, but there's absolutely no reason to change anything. There is, however, one exception. There is a classical music app, and we talked about this a few episodes ago. Apple is working on this. They've announced it. I think they said it was going to come out in the spring, I think we've got three weeks left in spring. That's what I seem to recall that uh, at the time of the acquisition of, I forget the name of the company. Primephonic? Primephonic. I think Something it was that... Primephonic. There are a number of classical music streaming companies with names like that. Groovy. They have groovy names. They must hire consultants, <laughs> right? Here, you want to use Primephonic. Well, yeah, but you know why they do this? Because they want the .com. Right, right. They have to have something that hasn't been used. Anyway, I expect that there's a possibility we'll see this presented at the WWDC on June 6th. I guess so, because we haven't heard anything about it at all. No. Not a peep. Oh, no. well, we haven't. I mean, I don't know. You're into classical music. <laughs> you stay up on top yeah, of these Yeah, no, things. I haven't heard anything. I, I The occasional mention of it showing up in code in something is the only thing that, that we've heard. So... It kind of seems like something that Apple's going to just release rather than release in beta. Mm. What I'm really interested in is all these tech writers who don't know anything about classical music who are going to try and pretend that they know a lot about classical music. <laughs> and they're going to be reviewing this thing and talking about how it works when they really don't have a clue. I'm sure every publication is going to try and find one classical music person to talk about it. But it's, you know, you're dealing with a with a subculture that's used to approaching music differently in classical music. And so that requires a lot of difference. I think it's actually, while I've pleaded for more features in iTunes slash music over the years, I, I, I'm almost leaning toward the fact that a separate app makes sense. However, what how do you define classical music? I mean, it's up to you to choose what you put, but there's stuff where the 
dividing line isn't really obvious. And also, if this is going to have its own access to the classical music section of Apple Music, how do you define what's there as well? You're right. The biggest stumbling block, of course, is the metadata and there, and therefore the layout of the UI and that sort of thing. How do you find the stuff that you want to listen to and that sort of thing? And I think it will have to be exclusive, although you're right. You could have what I imagine to be a uh, an idiosyncratic classical uh, metadata situation, and you could probably still put your Taylor Swift and Adele music in it. It would still you know, work that way. I, again, I don't know if you're able to add your own music. It may be just a service that is just classical music. We, we just don't know. Yeah. But I'm wondering, that, I, I wonder how, uh, how well the classical music will interface with everything else when up until now, classical music has, had, has tried to wedge its way into everything else. And so it'll be very interesting to see if it's distinctive and, idio and, and idiosyncratic. I think the issue is, will it only be for accessing Apple Music, in which case you're limited, you're not adding your own files. But how do you define classical music? My Apple Music library has something like 40,000 tracks. So this is not my main music library. This is the one that I do not combine with my main music library. Let me read off the genres that I have for music that seems to be classical. Baroque era, chamber music, classical, classical crossover. Contemporary era, Indian classical, does that count? Modern era, new age, new age could be sort of classical, orchestral, opera, percussion, I don't know what original score is, violin, why is there a violin genre? I have one John Cage record in there, it's in the violin genre. It's because the record label put that genre when they put it into iTunes and other places. And... Is Apple going to actually police this and go through everything to find what should be called classical? Will they lump it all in a single classical genre? Will they split it out? I, these are all questions we don't know, but, but classical listeners need to know these answers. If I want to look for piano sonatas, I want to find an easy way to get to keyboard music for piano of a particular century, for example. And I think that's the challenge in this. And I, it's going to be difficult to see how well they do it. I think they're going to fall back on the way it is now with curated playlists. and Because the, the company they bought was basically creating curated playlists. You know, they were using people who knew about classical music to create playlists, to select works, to provide editorial content, etc., that's what I wondered. How were they doing it before? And maybe they'll just stick with that because why yeah. change? I mean, when they bought iTunes, they didn't really change it that much except to change, to, to, to stick some Apple stuff in there so it could, you know, work with other things. But essentially, it was SoundJam. So it doesn't, it wouldn't surprise me if they just said, let's just do it as is. They've figured that part out um, and we'll just pour some Apple in it. <laughs> Well, time will tell, and, and I'm worried that it's just an interface for Apple Music, which actually might make sense because do you want to have two separate music libraries? And I used to do this. I used to have one iTunes library for my classical, which synced with one iPod, and one iTunes library for the rest that synced with another iPod. But you've got to quit iTunes, relaunch with the other library. And again, where do you make the distinction of what it's classical. I mean, if you're choosing from your own music, you decide if you want The Grateful Dead to be classical, that's up to you. See, I wonder if the rigors of all that is what appeals 
to some users. It's like the fact that it is difficult and awkward and 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 rigorous uh, is part of the charm <laughs> of listening to digital music. Um, I, you know, I mean, I can kind of dig that to a certain degree. I, I like digging through my my music library like that. I don't sit there and go, oh, I wish this were easier. I wish there were just one button I could push and have it exactly the way I want it. That just not isn't going to happen. But every I mean, time there I is, rip a CD, I, I think about that. I wish it was easier every single time. Yeah, I don't. It's not an enjoyable part of listening for me. But I'm not buying many CDs anymore, so I'm not ripping many CDs. So I'm not facing these tagging challenges, which I've just had up to here over the years of like the amount of time it takes to tag and retag. And thank God you're there with your Apple scripts to save so much time, because if I had to type in all that stuff manually, God, it would be hellish. Well, that's good, and it's it, like I said, it's still going strong. People are still doing digital music files they're either buying cds and ripping them or they're i don't know re-ripping or but for somehow they they are managing digital files frequently well there is a big movement around buying files again to support artists you know bandcamp um, oh, sure. is quite popular and they, they cover a lot of genres i i think people who are really into music are buying files again I said buying files that sounds so unmusical right <laughs> but that's what it is though it is isn't it i mean that's the really the way you have to distinguish it it's yeah. really you are buying files yeah so so i think it's not dead even though apple's not selling much if you go to the itunes store and the music app you'll see a big banner telling you you can listen to you know 90 million tracks on apple music so they're not really pushing sales anymore which yeah, things change. It's it's just the way it is. Well, again, things do change, but sometimes people don't change with them. And and Amazon still sells downloads, right? You can still download stuff sure. from Amazon. In fact, when you sure. buy a CD, I believe you are entitled to the downloads. So yeah. that saves you a step. And you know why not? Yeah. You know, I I mean, I do know people who won't stream. The idea of 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 renting their music, which is erroneous, but. But the yeah. idea of having to pay for music until you don't pay for it anymore and then not have it, that still sticks in the in the back of their head. Um, I, you know, what are you going to do? They've been raised on digital files. You know, yeah. this is the way you listen to music. So just going back to audio equipment, I, I mean, we both know people who buy new stuff. And, and we've talked many times about how I buy a new computer, sell the old one on eBay. And I haven't done that in a while. I've had my Sonos amp for over three years. I think I've had the, the current speakers I have for almost about the same time. And yet I don't feel that itch other than those potentially those wireless KEF, which you have to worry about the firmware being updated. I don't really feel an itch anymore for that. You're settling. You're settling in. I'm settling. You don't. Ha you don't um, like that uh, that little app that you saw the uh, the little retro iTunes mini player. You're not going to go back to the the mini player. Not really, because you can already do most of that with the music app, and it's just. I don't want brush metal interface. I thought that was kind of cute, though. As I as I as right. I as I messaged you, they thought so much about doing it they never stop to think whether they should or not, and that's yes. It, it's a cute little interface, but. Well, it's it's the kind of thing that's like a hobbyist thing, right? It's on GitHub. It's not even on an app store. It's free, so it's someone who just wanted to make freeware because they enjoyed it. Yeah, it's nice. All right, how about some next tracks? Be my guest. Right, my pick this week is something that I will not be buying, and I probably wouldn't listen to all of it if, if I did buy it, but I think it's a very important release. It is a 
32-disc version of Robert Fripp's album Exposures. It's a whole combination of stuff. It's a bunch of... So Exposures uses Robert Fripp's Frippertronics, which is based on loops, and it has collaborations, including one of the most extraordinary versions of Here Comes the Flood by Peter Gabriel. Instead of that loud, full band with drums and cymbals, it's just him on a piano with the guitar gently weeping. What might one say? So so this opens with three discs of major loops, and then here's some master loops from Lost in the Bush of Goats, and then here's some original album running order and outtakes, and then first edition plus extras, third edition plus extras. You know what it's going to be. It's one of those. Here's a 2021 stereo mix plus extras, new mixes, and then there's a bunch of Frippertronics recordings. Now, the original 1970s Frippertronics recordings are extraordinary, and I bought a bunch of them from the King Crimson website, it, it's it's a common thing now, this idea of doing a loop, right? You lay down a, a loop for, let's say, 12 measures, and then you lay over it. But when Fripp did it, this was brand new. He would just be his guitar, and he this was a kind of ambient music, similar to, in our last episode, we talked about 1973, the Frippino No Pussyfooting. A lot of it is that style of music. So there are... About two dozen discs of live recordings, as well as Let the Power Fall, which is an album that came out, League of Gentlemen stuff uh, that came out later. So this is a period where Fripp went from this ambient loop stuff into a lot more aggressive music. It's for completists. It's for real fanatics. It's $253 on Amazon US. It's got 261 ratings already, and it only came out, I think, a week ago. So if you're into Fripp, you might want to have this. There's more Fripp there than you'd ever want. And to be honest, they've released a number of these big box sets of King Crimson albums and tours and all. And this is probably the only one that would sort of tempt me. While The Road to Red, which is the album Red and a lot of live shows, is interesting, I'm more interested in this music that hasn't been available very widely for a long time. So it is the new edition of Exposures. Link in the show notes. Doug, what have you got? I am going to be listening to an album by Bonnie Raitt, who I have loved since I saw her perform at a Brown University spring weekend, which I snuck into, and I don't even think I was a teenager at the time. But anyway, uh, I've always liked Bonnie Raitt. I like her early stuff better before she got commercialized, as the saying goes. Uh, the album I'm going to listen to is one called Green Light, which came out in 1982. Now, let's get this straight. In 1979, she had a really big album with something called The Glow, uh, produced by Peter Asher. Everybody in L.A. was on it. It was like big hitsville for her. She didn't record again until 1981, this album, and then it wasn't even released for a year. So it had been three years since anyone heard new Bonnie Raitt music, and a lot of people didn't like this record when it came out because it wasn't that pop Bonnie Raitt. She wanted to get back and do something that was a little more rock and roll, a little more earthy. So she got together. She got a, a small core band that included Ian McLoggan of The Faces and uh, Ricky Fatar and a couple of other guys. And they just recorded this album. There's a couple of NRBQ songs on it, which is where the title comes from, Green Light, which comes from the song Green Lights. She also does Me and the Boys. She had one hit off this record, and it just kind of it really just kind of maintained her for a little while. It was called Keep This Heart in Mind, which was not a bad pop song. But the rest of the album is a bit looser, a bit earthier, a bit more rockin' and rollin' and funkier, like her earlier stuff. And from what I understand, she liked this record, too. So that's my next track, Green Light by Bonnie Raitt. 
This was episode number 236 of The Next Track. Thanks for listening. You can start or join a conversation in the comments section of this episode's show page at our website. You'll also find links to some of the things we talked about in the show notes for this episode. Just visit thenexttrack.com. You can follow us on Twitter at NextTrackCast. And don't forget to support The Next Track by making regular donations via Patreon. We are ad-free and self-sustaining, so listener support is what keeps us going. Visit patreon.com slash thenexttrack. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks again. We'll talk to you next time.